This Voice of the Arts podcast is made possible thanks to the Carnegie Museum of Art. You are listening to WQED Voice of the Arts podcast. I'm Emily Bruner, and today we have award-winning science fiction and horror writer Lawrence Connolly. Lawrence, welcome. It's great to be here. Hello, Emily. (laughs) Um, So you've written a play based on a novel by Mary Shelley called Frankenstein, and it is premiering um, at Prime Stage Theater this weekend. Uh, what is the show about, and how did you come to write it? All right. Well, uh, of course, uh, yeah. let's let's start off with how it came about. I think that that will be a, an interesting story, and it'll it will lead nicely into um, uh, what the story is about and uh, the the special way that we are going to be telling it at Prime Stage. So this was the. Um, uh, it was 2019, and I had a film come out, and then after that, the writers, the co-writers on the film, had a book come out, and uh, this book, titled Nightmares, the, the title of the film was Nightmare Cinema, which is currently streaming on AMC and Shutter. <laughs> and um, the writers of that film put out a book, a four-author book called Nightmares. And since one of the writers was Mexican horror writer Sandra Bussarell, we had the book come out in Mexico first. And so we went down there in the fall of 2019. We're doing this tour down there, this book launch down there. I came back. I attended the World Fantasy Convention in L.A., and then I flew back home. And I'm dog-tired. I don't want to do anything but go to bed. And my wife thinks uh, that this would be a good night to go out and see some theater. And I always trust her instincts. I, uh, <laughs> Pittsburgh's a great place for theater, so I decided, what the heck, let's do it. And the play we decided on was The Scarlet Letter at Prime Stage Theater, directed by Liam Masick. And I, I know Liam, and so when I got there, I, I was able to say hello to Liam, and then I like to get to theater early, so I went up and we got our seats. And uh, as people are streaming in, Liam pointed me out to the um, artistic director, or the managing, I guess he's the the director, the directing artistic manager of our of uh, Prime Stage Theater. I hope I don't get that wrong. <laughs> um, and Wayne Brenda, at any rate. And so Wayne um, comes up, he sits in the seat next to me, and he says, "We would like to do a production of Frankenstein, but we aren't finding a script that's going to work for us. Would you be interested in writing Frankenstein?" And at that point, I decided. Well, this is great. I had never thought about writing a script of Frankenstein before, but it's a book that I've always loved, and it's a, certainly a genre that I work in. And as and then he said, we'd like to keep the cast fairly small. We'd like it to be, we'd like to take the the big sprawling novel and condense it down to ninety minutes. So. This is how we talk about what the story is about, because our version of Frankenstein, in order to to keep the cast small and to be able to tell the story in 90 minutes, what I decided and pretty much decided on a spot, this is one of those moments of inspiration that just hit at the moment, I realized that the best way to do this is to tell two stories. We'll open with the story of Mary Shelley She gets a challenge from Lord Byron to create a story. And then we listen to Mary tell the story. And as she tells it, it comes alive on the stage. Mm -hmm. So this becomes the first version of Frankenstein that she comes up with that night at Villa Diodate. And since it's the first version, it's the version she tells that night, 
all the uh, expansive stuff is taken out. It's just the core story. And also what we benefit by having this two or by this layered story is that the story of the creature created by Victor Frankenstein in some ways becomes the story of the story that Mary Shelley creates. And so the creature then becomes kind of a metaphor for the writing process. And so when this came to me, when I, when I thought of this, I thought, well, this is ideal. This is the ideal way to tell the story. And we get to keep the cast small because if Mary is making this up on the spot, she's drawing from her life. And so the mansion that they are in with Lord Byron, Villa Diodate, then becomes the Frankenstein mansion. Mm. So on stage, it's the same set. Wow. And the people in her life, Percy Shelley, becomes Victor Frankenstein. Of course, that's obvious because she really did base, in many ways, Victor Frankenstein on Percy Shelley. But extending that, Lord Byron, the explorer, the adventurer, becomes Robert Walton, the Arctic explorer who discovers Victor Frankenstein on an ice floe in the frozen north. Mm. And on and on, uh, John Polidori, the, uh, uh, the, the good friend and personal physician of uh, Lord Byron, becomes the good friend of Victor Frankenstein, Henry Clerval. Mm. And Mary Shelley herself becomes Elizabeth Lavenza, the soon-to-be wife of Victor Frankenstein. It all fit together, and it just occurred to me at that point, at that moment, I, I don't want to, I, I won't compare myself to Mozart, but I will say that I had heard that Mozart <laughs> said that, this, that, that the music would come to him in one block, one moment of conception, one idea, and all he had to do was add time to it. Mm. Um, what I essentially did is I added time to this idea and it's uh, now in rehearsal and it's ready to go up on, um, ready to preview on the 4th of November and open up on the 5th of November. So it's all worked out well. Very exciting, very exciting. <laughs> and that sounds really awesome. The, the double casting um, definitely keeps the show small and intimate, but also, like you said, kind of shows the duality of each character and what it was uh, meant to represent in her stories. So that's awesome. Um, and how there's a lot of different adaptations around um, about Frankenstein and about Mary Shelley. How is, is this one different from those? Is this one the same? How did you decide? Yeah, I like to think of this one as being um, uh, maybe closer, uh, much closer to the novel than, um, than many of the adaptations that have come before. The play was, or the book, the novel was first adapted in 2000. Oh no, hang on. The, the, the novel was first adapted in uh, 1823 mm. with a play called Presumption or the Fate of Frankenstein. And with that adaptation, which came out about five years after the novel was first published, with that adaptation, things started to change. Yeah. The creature becomes something other than what Mary Shelley created. The story begins to take on uh, a, a different dimension, and things evolve from there. And so adaptation builds on adaptation, builds on adaptation. And finally, we arrive now, uh, you know, 2022, and we're very far away with many of our adaptations. We're very far away from Mary's, Shelley's original intent. And so with this story, with this adaptation, we are endeavoring to go back 
endeavoring to go right back to Mary Shelley's original concept. And in her concept, this is going to be new to a lot of people. Victor Frankenstein, in the novel, goes out to graves and carnal houses, and he collects bones and he collects specimens and he studies them. His purpose is to, to study decay. He wants to learn about death so he can solve the mystery of life. This is his quest. And at some point, he thinks maybe he can reanimate these pieces, stitch them together and, and create a, a, a new person out of dead matter. But then in chapter four, it occurs to him that he can't do it. He says that because the minuteness of the parts hindered his progress, he decided to make the creature eight feet tall and proportionably large. Wow. He makes it. And so he abandons the notion of stitching together these body parts, and he takes on this new idea that he will create the creature from scratch. And this ties in with the subtitle of the book. The subtitle is A Modern Prometheus. There's two versions of the Prometheus story. There's the one Prometheus Pyrophoro who takes the fire from the heavens, but there is a lesser known one that Mary Shelley had in mind, and that is Prometheus Plasticator, who creates people out of clay mm. and brings them to life. And this is what Victor Frankenstein does. He creates this new creature out of raw material, not out of body parts, and brings us to life. And this then explains why the monster, why the creature later on in the story is able to learn so fast. Mm -hmm. He eavesdrops on the DeLacy family and learns language by watching them speak, by listening to them speak and watching them read. Yeah. And so he has this incredible intellect. So what we are doing in this play is that we are letting the creature keep his amazing intellect that Mary Shelley gave him in the original. And it takes him a little while to learn, but he's able to learn much faster than any person could. And so by the middle of the play, this is an articulate, conniving, plotting, vengeful creature. Mm. And as a result, becomes more frightening, I yeah. think, than uh, a lumbering brute yes. who doesn't have the intellect or maybe simply has the damaged brain of a criminal, right. as we saw in some of the films. <laughs> so this is how we are different from some of the other adaptations, and I'm very excited about that. Yeah, that's great, especially since like a lot of the adaptations I've watched and read have all been like like you said, like he's uh, not like intellectually challenged and lumbering and more more just like a big hulking feature, and that's what makes him scary. But like what I find scary about that is like he has an intellect, he's conniving, he has a plan, um, versus him just wandering around and running into random people. Um, that's that's definitely going to make it much more scary. Yeah, I think so. In, in a way, um, uh, Liam Masick pointed this out. Liam is the director. Uh, he was the director, as I mentioned before, of uh, Scarlet Letter. Yeah. Uh, he's also directing this play. And um, he mentioned uh, just a few days ago that, um, that he sees this creature as being similar to Hal in 2001, yes. uh, the artificial creature, the artificial intelligence that is able to play three or four moves ahead of the people that he interacts with. And that's what our creature is doing in this play. Ooh, sounds like a, a cat and mouse game. Very right. <laughs> yes. 
Um, and is this your first time working with Prime Stage Theaters? Is there... This is this is my first time working with Prime Stage, and uh, it's been a very exciting, uh, you know, uh, working relationship with them. Uh, we um, I completed the script in early 2020, um, turned it in in February, oh. and I was ready to leave town to go to uh, uh, the International Conference of the Fantastic and the Arts down in Florida, and had to cancel my flight because COVID hit, yeah. and then the following. Uh, fall when Frankenstein was to debut at Prime Stage, all theaters go dark. Mm. And so theaters are now thinking of new ways to reach their audiences. And some theaters are doing productions via Zoom. But Wayne Brenda gets this great idea that maybe we could do a podcast mm. story, a five-act mystery set in a theater and each episode would end with a prompt for the listeners to try to solve the mystery on their own. <laughs> Analyze the clues. Where do the clues take us? And so this became Prime Stage Mystery Theater. And it was supposed to be a one-off, a five-act mystery titled A Knavish Piece of Mystery. Mm. But it caught on. And we are now... On November 3rd, just a couple of days ahead of Frankenstein's premiere, we are going to drop the sixth chapter of Prime Stage Mystery Theater. It's going to be called In the Ghost Lights Glow, and it's going to tie in with the play that we're putting on at Prime Stage because it takes place on the night of a rehearsal of a play based on the life of Mary Shelley. <laughs> yeah, and in the middle of the rehearsal... Boom, great storm rolls in, the power goes out, they have to cancel rehearsal, and the stage manager leaves something behind and has to return to the darkened theater in the middle of this thunderstorm. And when the stage manager gets there, there is something waiting on the stage, and the mystery begins. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that sounds awesome, especially since it ties into the uh, the theater show. That's awesome. Yes, that was something we started doing, I guess, around the third uh, chapter, uh, the third time, our third mystery, when Prime Stage returned, when, when uh, plays returned to the stage at Prime Stage, we began making the mysteries tie in with the, the show that is on at that time. Mm. And so it's been, it, it's just been great fun. So we're able to not only in some shows, we highlight what the listeners are telling us mm. and other shows we highlight uh, behind the scenes stuff. We have interviews with the directors and the actors and, uh, um, and other people involved with the plays. And I'm very excited about this new episode coming up because the one that drops on November 3rd, we are going to begin with an interview with Liam Masick before we go in to the first installment of the mystery. So I'm hoping everybody will check us out. We're available wherever podcasts are available, uh, and it's Prime Stage Mystery Theater, but they can also, listeners can also find every episode on primestage.com. Yes. Uh, they're all available there. <laughs> You can listen all the way back to the pandemic time. All the way back to the beginning. They're all there. That's the nice thing about the Internet is nothing goes away. It's a good thing for podcasts. Anyway. Yes, yeah, it's a good thing for podcasts. Um, and so in addition to writing um, plays, what else have you done? Um, well, right now um, uh, I have um, a couple of projects going on. Um, it's, uh, it's been an exciting time for, um, for writing 
because it's, it's been an exciting and challenging time for writing. <laughs> but one thing that I'm able to do is that I'm able to stay home much more mm. than I used to. And, and maybe in a way that's, that's a, a bad thing, maybe in a way that's a good thing. But um, what I'm finding out is I'm one hour from New York. I have, um, I have a script in development in New York right now. And I'm five hours from L.A. I have a script in development there. And I was thinking as these two projects were gaining momentum right before COVID, I was thinking, well, I am going to be out of town a lot. But then COVID came along and that, that slowed down the productions, right? I yeah. mean, things kind of um, went on the shelf for a while. But when they began opening back up, by that time, most people are doing their meetings via Zoom. Yeah. And so I'm able to, to do my Zoom meetings, and it's just like I'm either living in New York or living in L.A. It's pretty good. And if anybody wants to see me, I can be there in one or five, five hours, <laughs> depending on which direction I'm going. So, um, so that's exciting. And I also have a um, – and that Nightmares book that I mentioned earlier that came out in, uh, in Mexico in 2019, that has just come out from Gauntlet Press in, uh, in English edition. And it is also coming out this month in an Italian edition. Oh, wow. So, so people can, can read it in multiple languages. So I am, um, I'm keeping busy, and, um, and things are going very well. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And, of course, you're only five hours away from L.A. because you live close to the airport. Only five hours away, and, uh, you know, with a cell phone and a, uh, and a Zoom address, you know, who knows where I am, right? Because <laughs> I, 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 it used to be uh, that you, you needed to live in New York or you needed to live in L.A. LA, but the cost of living and the traffic is so horrendous mm-hmm. in those places that uh, it's so n- nice if I can live somewhere else and uh, and commute digitally when at all possible or um, or just fly in when I need to. So it's um, but I, I am keeping busy and I am excited that things are opening up, too, because uh, this weekend on Saturday, actually, we're recording this um, on uh, the 25th, but we're going to air on Halloween, right? Yeah. So, so I'm doing a book event uh, in that is right now in my future, but it's going to be in our listeners' past. So let me tell the listeners a couple things that will be in their future. This will <laughs> be in our future, in their future. Um, Prime Stage has a number of exciting events going on at the Frankenstein plays. For example, on November 12th, there are going to be people there from um, Pittsburgh Robotics. And they are going to have a robot in the lobby on November 12th. (laughs) And they are going to stick around afterward to talk about artificial intelligence and and artificial creatures in the 21st century mm. and we're going to be able to uh, to compare Mary Shelley's vision with the vision of people who are creating real working robots and real working artificial intelligence today and also on opening night at Prime Stage uh, Frankenstein that'll be on the 5th we will have a mystery theater display where there are going to be some of the clues laid out and people can come in and examine the clues uh, and maybe offer some solutions to the mystery. So lots of things happening in, uh, in, in our future here, too. Lots of things to look forward to. Oh, that's great. That's going to be so exciting, um, especially with all the, the clues scattered about and talking about the future with the past. That's yes. Awesome. Yeah. Um, could we talk a little bit about your uh, past? How did you start? 
Yes, uh, I um, uh, I'm also a musician, and uh, and this is this was what I intended to do. This is what I intended uh, to be um, when I was uh, uh, you know getting started way back in the um, uh, the, the 1970s. And I, my brother and I had a band, and we were working five nights a week, and I would get home at uh, three in the morning, and I used to think that it would be nice if I was able to practice art, if, if I were able to, to, to do art without having to leave home, uh, you know, I'm kind of an introvert. And so I started writing. And I was reading the science fiction magazines at the time. I uh, was at that time able to go to the newsstands and, uh, and pick up the magazines and, and read them, and I enjoyed them. And, and I was gradually developing a sense of what was selling and what people like to read. And so one day, I was living in Squirrel Hill. One day, I noticed that the science fiction writer, Joe Haldeman, was going to be speaking at the Bookworm on Murray Avenue. And I figured, this is great. I'm going to be able to meet a real science fiction writer and find out what, the, what it's all about and see if I can get started on writing. And so I figured there was going to be a big line. So I went down there early. And when I get there, I find out that oh, there's nobody there. There's Joe Haldeman is there, but uh, there, there's, there's not a lot of people. And um, it, it makes me think that, uh, you know, Andy Warhol said that in the future, everybody will be famous for 15 minutes, right? But writers are famous for 15 people. And so, you know, writers who are well-known to me maybe not be that well-known to everybody. So I had Joe Haldeman to myself. And I sat down there and uh, talked to him about writing science fiction. And uh, he kind of got me started on the path. I went home and I worked on a story. I sent it out to a magazine called Amazing Stories. Amazing Stories is the first, was, it's not quite publishing now. I think they might have a presence on the internet, but um, they, at the time, were the very first science fiction magazine ever. The first magazine to call itself science fiction mm -hmm. came out in the 1920s. And so I was able to sell my first story to what is essentially the first science fiction magazine. And uh, I sold uh, the next five stories to places like uh, Amazing Stories and Twilight Zone. And then... These stories began getting picked up for year's best anthologies, and I was thinking, this is pretty good. This is a good life. And then one day I come home, and, uh, and my wife tells me um, that some guy calls from Hollywood, and he wants to option one of the stories. So it was um, a pretty exciting time. After that, things contracted a little bit. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, success is not a straight line. It, uh, it gets interrupted. Their uh, publishing uh, began to change. The magazines began to fold. It was not as easy to, uh, to sell fiction. I saw the writing on the wall, and so I, um, I had the good fortune to, um, to land a position at Duquesne University uh, as an object instructor, where they put me in the same office with Samuel Hazo. <laughs> and Sam uh, took me from where Joe Haldeman left off, and he took me the rest of the way. Mm -hmm. And I learned so much from Sam, not only about being a writer through good times and hard times, but I also learned a great deal from him about um, how a writer can be a teaching writer. Mm -hmm. And so uh, from there, I was able to go on and uh, pick up a couple of uh, teaching gigs. And uh, for, for many years, I was uh, one of the residency writers out at Seton Hill University where they have 
this terrific program and writing popular fiction. And uh, during the lean years, I was able to, um, to augment my um, writing income with uh, teaching income. And, um, and yet for the past uh, five years, uh, this has been all I've been doing. Things have been going very well. And so it all started. It all started at, on Murray Avenue with the bookworm and Joe Haldeman and, uh, and at Duquesne University with Sam Hazo. Um, and uh, I'm very thankful to the people who have um, who lent a helping hand when I was on my way up. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Such a Pittsburgh story, too. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and, and so you've written a couple of, as you said, uh, books and you've written for magazines and you've written for plays and vid- and. Uh, videos um how how has that all been different has has any of it been different writing for plays versus versus books versus films yes uh it is different um certainly in a uh in a writing a play or a film it's we don't have to describe everything it's collaborative (laughs) so if i want to say that there is a laboratory and there is a eight-foot-tall creature lying under a shroud, that's all I got to (laughs) say. And the designers are going to take it from there. And beyond that, when a character speaks, I don't, in a script, get the opportunity to say what that character is thinking or, or how that character is saying something. I let the words that the character speaks indicate that and let the actor take it from there. Yeah. It's all about trusting the designers and the directors and the actors to bring the work to the next level. Yeah. For example, I was in um, when I was in L.A. when we were shooting Nightmare Cinema. I was there with David Slade, um, who uh, was directing. Nightmare Cinema is an anthology mm-hmm. film, and so there were five segments, each directed by uh, a different director. And David Slade, who was the um, uh, executive producer of Hannibal on NBC and the director of uh, 30 Days of Night and Twilight Eclipse, many feature films, he was directing This Way to Igris, which was my story. And we co-wrote the script based on my story. And the third day of shooting, they were going to be doing a scene that takes place outside a doctor's office. And Inside the doctor's office, separated from the point of view character by a translucent window, is a tall doctor and what looks like two small children. And they're having a conversation on the other side of the glass. And the entire scene, which runs something like four pages, maybe five pages, is the actor outside listening and I, and I got a little nervous uh, the day of the shoot. I, I said to David, do you want, or it was the day before, I, I said, do you want me to revise that a little bit? Do you want me to punch it up a little bit? I mean, we, this, is a, this is five pages of a character listening. And he said, no, I think it's going to work. So trusting the director, trusting the actor, tr- trusting the designers, what we have now is we have this brilliant set We have these shadows, which are slowly changing as they speak. We have the sounds of their voices, which are becoming more urgent as they speak. We have the 
score, which is becoming increasingly uneasy. We have the reaction on the actor's face outside. We have cutaways to what her hands are doing. We have cutaways to what she's looking at on the glass. We have cutaways to down the hall. And it all works beautifully. And I didn't have to write that stuff. (laughs) The only thing that I essentially wrote for that scene was what she is hearing being discussed on the other side of that glass door. Mm. And so what makes screenwriting and playwriting different from novel writing or story writing is that a writer doesn't have to take it the whole way. A writer gets to trust his or her collaborators to deliver the finished product. And that's very exciting. And I have found since then that uh, since I've been working on scripts, that the process informs my prose writing as well, because now I am able with the first draft to try to envision what actors, stage designers, set designers would do with this and then incorporate that into the narrative. So one feeds the other. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah, uh, uh, collaborating is also such a such a different skill from from writing alone in your, you know, in your house and so that's it's always nice when you because um, I'm a sound designer at CMU and it's always nice to read a a script and it's not descriptive down to everything. Right, and there's some creative liberties that that said person that's reading it can take when they're adapting it to uh, a play or when they're trying to bring it to life on stage. Um, and it's similar to what like a reader does when they read a book, right? They have their own imaginations, their own opinions, um, even even if you describe everything down to detail. Yes, that's an excellent point. It's all collaborative, isn't it? Yeah. Um, in in uh, in fiction writing, we go halfway, and the reader comes the other half. And uh, in um, script writing. Um, we go less, we don't go quite as far and uh, let the others, it's more like marathon running, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. And you uh, you mentioned that you were a musician. Are you still a musician now? I'm still a musician. Uh, it's one of those things like swimming. You never forget how to do it. At least I hope not. I've uh, been very busy and haven't been out playing since COVID hit. We uh, used to play, uh, I was in a band called the Lockery Connolly Band, and anyone who wants to hear us can hear us on Bandcamp. It's uh, Lockery L-A-U-G-H-R-E-Y, Connolly, and uh, Lockery, Christopher Lockery is my longtime collaborator in music, and um, we would play at the Poor House uh, in, in Carnegie and various other venues around town, and come St. Patrick's week, ah, St. Patrick's month, really, uh, in <laughs> Pittsburgh, uh, we would, it would not be unusual for us to play hours and hours and hours in a single night. And, and there, were, there was one, one time when we played four hours uh, inside Riley's and then uh, went back the next day and uh, played four more hours outside and then four more hours inside and then went back outside. It was one of those things where it was challenging just to see if it was physically possible to do such a thing. And I was really looking forward to doing that again in um, the March, in March of 2020, but um, that didn't happen. And 
I became so busy with other projects after that that I haven't had a chance really to get out and play again. But um, the music does live on Bandcamp. Yep. <laughs> There's also some stuff on Spotify. I wrote some instrument, wrote and performed some instrumental music for one of my novels. Oh, that if people go to Spotify and uh, look for uh, Lawrence Connolly, uh, they will find um, this soundtrack to that novel. It's uh, it's all instrumental, uh, as opposed to the uh, the vocal okay. uh, music that uh, that we would do at Riley's. A man of many talents. <laughs> um, you know that is the um, that is the curse, isn't it? Uh, uh, we, you know, uh, it's the desire to create. We're getting back mm-hmm. to Frankenstein, and uh, um, so this this drive that that drives some people, actually many people, every everybody uh, really, uh, you know, is is creating. We are all creating uh, all the time in our life, and um, and getting back to um, Mary Shelley's story. When I mention the curse of creativity, there is oftentimes that realization that what we have made was not what we intended to make. And the challenge is then to continue to work at it and not to give up. Victor Frankenstein's fault is that he creates something, has great ambitions for it, steps back and looks at it after it is finished and realizes it is not what he meant to do. Mm. And instead of working with it to perfect it, he abandons it. And as a result, he pays the price. And so Mary Shelley, on the other hand, writes Frankenstein stands by it, even though it didn't become a great hit at first. It was published in only 500, only 500 copies when it first came out. It did not catch on until the adaptation hit the stage in 18, let's see, that would have been 1823. And she isn't even in England at the time. She is in Europe traveling with her son, Percy Florence. She gets a letter that tells her that there is this play in London and that it, it is a rave and people are, are you know, fainting and, uh, and people are, are flocking to it. And she realizes suddenly she's famous. The book comes out again. Frankenstein is published again on the heels of the release of this play. Uh, a few years later, she revises the book. It is published in a second edition. It has not been out of print or off the stage or off the screen since. And this is because she stood by her work. Even though her work did not always please her, she writes in the second edition, she calls it her hideous progeny. (laughs) She bids her hideous progeny to go out and prosper once again, realizing that what she creates is not in her control once she sends it into the world. And that's the mindset that um, creators, artists have to adopt, that I will create the best thing I can, I will release it to the world, and I will let it fend for itself and represent me out in the world, knowing that at that point, I cannot change it. But I have to live with it. I can't pretend it's not there, which is what Victor Frankenstein does. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Tries to. He tries tries to pretend it's not there. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Well, Lawrence Connolly, thank you so much for coming in and having this discussion with me. It was amazing. 
This has been great. Thank you so much. I've been enjoy- I've enjoyed talking with you, and I look forward to seeing you and many of our listeners out at Frankenstein at uh, the New Hazlet uh, on the north side when it uh, premieres on the 5th. Yes. See you then. <laughs> See you soon. Lawrence Connolly's new play, Frankenstein, will debut at Prime Stage Theater um, that is going to be hosted in New Hazlitt's Theater November 4th to the 13th. Tickets are available at primestage.com events. This is WQED's Voice of the Arts podcast. This Voice of the Arts podcast is made possible thanks to the Carnegie Museum of Art.